question for you, America. Who's gonna pay for the wall? Mexico. Who's gonna pay for the wall? Mexico. Who's gonna pay for the wall? Mexico. Hmm, but I thought, I thought Vincente Fox, he said, uh, we are never going to pay uh, for that uh, wall. Remember that? Oh, really, dude? I mean, you might not have a choice, my homie, unless you find a way to stop illegals from pouring into this country. I mean, if you can find a way that doesn't include a wall, then great. But until then, we are taxing the snot out of your products, and there's nothing you can do about it. Here's my question, all right? If tariffs don't actually hurt the country they are imposed on, and it's only the American consumers who are hurt, then why do other countries always get so mad? You mad, bro? Why do they always get so mad when we impose them? Why do they always retaliate? The answer is because it does hurt them. Foreign exporters often absorb a large percentage of these increased tariffs because they drop their prices, they have to, to maintain access to our market, which they cannot afford to lose. So the Trump administration, big announcement announcing a 5% tariff going up every single month until they stop illegal immigration. Oh, it's not a tax on Mexico. The American people will end up holding the bag. Just don't buy as many Mexican products, all right? I mean, it's easy. I mean, really, would it kill you people to go a bit without buying Coronas and Dos Equis? I mean, I'm sorry. I am sorry it's going to be more expensive for you to party, all right? Your chips and guac are going to be more expensive. Your margaritas will be a little more expensive. Your tecate and modelo will be more expensive. So sorry, so sorry the price of your Cinco de Mayo Rager is going to be a little bit pricier, okay? I mean, after that's all cultural appropriation anyway. You shouldn't be doing that anyway. The idea that a tariff is going to hurt the American people more than what illegal immigration is already doing is a joke. It's a joke. You want to know what illegal immigration is costing us, hmm? Quote, even after deducting the $19 billion in taxes paid by illegal immigrants, you know, because I was like, well, they're taxpayers too. Well, even after all of that, the 12.5 million of them living in the country, and that is a modest estimate, results in a $116 billion burden on the economy and taxpayers each year. About two-thirds of this amount is absorbed by local and state taxpayers who are often the least unable to share the costs. And let's not forget that non-citizen families are twice as likely to receive welfare payments than native-born families. Half of non-citizens receive Medicaid, whereas only 23% of native-born citizens do. Almost half of non-citizens, they are on food stamps. You think this doesn't hurt our economy? You think taxpayers aren't already paying a lot for the cost of illegal immigration? Think again. And that's, by the way, that's just the monetary costs, right? That's not the humanitarian costs. More than 75,000 families have crossed this month and four children have died. More than 80,000 migrants are currently in immigration custody. 2,350 unaccompanied children are currently being held in custody at the border as of yesterday. 400 children arrived within the past 24 hours. May, the month of May, is on pace to be the highest month of illegal crossings in over 12 years. And it's getting worse, folks. It's getting worse. According to Homeland Security Acting Secretary McAleenan, one day this week, a single group of 1,036 families and unaccompanied children simply walked. They just trotted on over from Juarez, Mexico, into the United States illegally as a single group. The number of people in custody is simply not sustainable with the resources we have now. ICE's immediate detention facilities at the border are overwhelmed, all right? Children 
are literally dying. We've got the highest level ever of children. They are currently waiting in custody and they are waiting to be put in a facility with decent conditions because Health and Human Services has run out of bed, bed space. We have adults, all right, who are smuggling kids, kids that aren't even theirs. They are risking those kids' lives. Many of them are coming with drugs, by the way. I mean, it's a disaster. And Mexico is doing nothing. They are not doing a damn thing. So it's clearly a national emergency because that's why the president declared it as such. And it would behoove the president to shut down the border once and for all. We're still waiting for that. He says he's not going to do it. We are waiting for the president to shut down the border. However, however... That does not mean that we still shouldn't do what we can to urge Mexico to assist. And here are some steps that Mexico could take. I mean, first they could, I mean, build the wall for us, really, if they wanted to. But if they don't want to build the wall along the U.S.-Mexico border, they could secure their southern border with Guatemala. They could crack down on the transnational criminal and drug operations. They could work with the U.S. on working together on asylum. According to the acting secretary of Homeland Security, we need to be able to protect people in the first safe country they arrive in, really all through the hemisphere, but certainly with our partner to the south. Again, Trump could always make Mexico pay through remittances. I mean, that, that was a thing. That was his plan during the campaign. Shut down remittances from Mexicans here illegally in America to their families in Mexico. Those remittances essentially serve as welfare for Mexicans since the Mexican government doesn't provide its own welfare like we do. They don't provide their own for the Mexican people. So poor people in Mexico, they rely on these remittances from illegals here in America, and shutting them down would be devastating for them, and therefore the government would have no choice but to cave. Now the other thing that could be done, which actually appears to already be in the works, would be choking off asylum for Central Americans if they resided in a country other than their own before coming to the U.S., I mean, this would be a great first step in terms of shutting down the border completely. And now would be a great time to shut it all down. The president says he's not. I would urge him to reconsider that. It's just my humble opinion. Because you know what? Congress, they certainly aren't helping. Congress is not doing jack squat. All right? And we need to do everything in our power to fix this border crisis. We need to get Mexico to help. We need to shut down the border. We need to end asylum for the time being, at least. We need to start building the wall. We need to finish the wall. And we also need to engage our military on the border so that we can once and for all fix this awful crisis at the border. All right, guys, I want to move on to education because it does not take illegal aliens pouring over the border to transform our country away from the ideals on which it was founded by indiscriminately letting in people who know nothing about our values or way of life. They can already do that by transforming our schools, by indoctrinating our kids with ideas that are, simply put, un-American. Inez Felcher-Stepman is a senior policy analyst at the Independent Women's Forum and a senior contributor at The Federalist, which is basically a lot of words to say that she has a lot of great ideas on what conservatives can do to end the leftist socialist indoctrination factories that are turning our kids into gender-confused SJW robots. And Inez is here with us now. Inez, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. So we've been doing a lot of work with Freedom Project Academy, and we talk about how a lot of people think the indoctrination starts in the colleges, but really it starts in K through 12. They're doing it from really early on. 
Yeah, there's actually a lot of survey evidence that college radicalizes rather than actually sets the underlying values of folks, right? So people come in with a vague leftist sensibility they've picked up from K-12 and education in this country, and then colleges may turn them fully on into radical leftists, right? And then the few conservatives who, who managed to make it through K-12 because of our families. I mean, in my case, my family um, fled the Soviet bloc, so, you know, socialism didn't ever sound like a really great deal. <laughs> we did never have an appeal to it. Yeah, um, but the few of us who sort of had that at home, um, we become more conservative in university once we are exposed to the crazy leftists there. So really, 90% um, of American kids are going through public K-12 education, and that system has moved progressively left, especially in like what you noted in your monologue about what they teach about America, American history, what they teach about, for example, um, sexual morality or values. These are things where the school system has moved very, very far left over time. Yeah, and, and, and am I being dramatic? when I say they are leftist indoctrination camps? I mean, that's essentially what they've become. They're institutionally left in a number of, of national ways. I think there are a lot of conservatives out there who still think that the public schools are under quote-unquote local control. And to some extent, that's true, right? Although school board elections are really, really low turnout, mostly controlled by teachers' unions, because it's easy to control in such a low turnout election. And we were talking 4% of eligible voters voting for school board elections. But then even if you do vote in people you like in the school board, a lot of these things are nationalizing forces, right? So the schools of education that nearly all the teachers have to go to to get certified, those are even further left than the average university, and there's studies that show this. So they're further left than the typical universities, and we're sending our teachers through there. And then there are also, I mean, there are national forces under the Obama administration, for example, they interpreted Title IX to say that public schools could not discriminate between boys and girls, for example, when it came to uh, which bathroom or which right. locker room. That's a national force. That's not something that's within parents' control or voters' control on the local level, which is why we have to bring that power back to the parents by giving them full control over the dollars through school choice. So we're not even talking about the family not having control and losing that to the state. And I mean the state in terms of the actual, you know, yeah. state of the 50 states. We're talking about families losing control to the federal government. In some cases, or just national forces, mm -hmm. like I said, like the fact that these schools of education are so far left, these are not forces that the individual family, unless they're wealthy enough to pick up and move to another district where they have a lot more power or to go to a private school or homeschool, um, they're not going to have that power, which is why school choice is important. It gives them the leverage that they need. So when, for example, 800 parents in Fremont, California, protested the new sex ed curriculum that they're using in all California schools now, um, which is super radical. Maybe we can get into the specifics of that. I, I do want to do that in a sec. But, um, you know, we had 800 parents in this town sign a petition and say, we don't want this in our school. Guess what? That school is getting that curriculum anyway. But if those 800 parents could each take their twelve, fourteen thousand dollars $14,000 that the state of California is paying to educate their children and then walk to their district and say, all that money's walking with us. Right. That gives parents real power. That really empowers families. And I think that's the direction we have to go. I just want to go into some of the details about what these families, their kids are being subjected to. And they don't have the option to opt out, as you just said. But in California, they have a, a newly approved statewide sex ed curriculum where the kindergartners have to learn about transgenderism. And then the 10 to 11-year-olds, this is a quote from an article, some teachers are also armed by the sex ed training they have to go through, including learning how to use anatomically correct fully erect adult male penis models for teaching lessons about sex to their young kids and how to put condoms on. This is 10 to 11 year old girls. They have to do this in front of boys and the parents don't have a choice as to maybe I don't want my kid learning this. I mean, that, how, how, does, how does anyone think that's a good idea? 
<laughs> Let but, alone the parents who think I want to opt out. How is that right. a smart idea for anybody? I mean, don't ask me to fathom where the left is going these days on sexual matters. But this is why it's important, because they're way out in front of the American people on this, right? The average parent still doesn't want their 10-year-old girl uh, putting a condom on an anatomically correct dildo. That is not <laughs> actually what the average American parent wants for their 10-year-old. Even in California, I Even in California. Say. That's what I was saying. Fremont is in the Bay Area, right? It is not uh, a far right, right. crazy bastion of conservatism, but the average parent has much more common sense than the system does. And the left has really, really taken conservatives to the cleaners on this, I think, in institutionalizing power, where they have this kind of soft institutional power, and yet the right still continues to operate as though those institutions are neutral. The public schools, the universities, these are not neutral institutions, and we should stop treating them that way. So you have a piece, Stop America's Woke Seminaries Now, and you say how we should be looking at education reform through the prism of how to destroy leftist control over these institutions. So what are some of those ways? So I think the most important one in K-12 is, is it's convenient. You know, a lot of times we're casting about for innovative new solutions. In this case, the solution is right in front of us. It's something conservatives have been pushing, school choice, for two and a half decades. But I think we have to talk about it differently. We've primarily talked about it as a way to raise test scores for kids who are in uh, the worst schools in America. And that's absolutely true and a worthwhile point to make. But what we haven't made is the point connecting exactly what I said, that leverage and power that parents want to have over what their kids are learning about sensitive moral issues, about American history, right, about these kinds of priorities. There's no such thing as a values-neutral education. And so I think we have to connect the power that choice gives families to those kinds of issues that people are really concerned about but just don't really, they're casting about for a solution of how to empower themselves and how to make sure that their kids are learning what they think they ought to be learning. And you, Universities are a little different. You propose greater access to charter schools. I'm told that charter schools are extraordinarily racist. That's what I that's what I hear. Um, and, and it's not just charter schools. I think private school choice is an important component of this because so many of these issues are moral, right? We've been operating under the assumption that there's some kind of moral neutral in the public schools. I think a lot of conservatives are waking up today to the idea that that's not true. There is no moral neutral. And that's why I think it's so important to bring in private schools that can explicitly be affiliated with, with churches or synagogues. Um, I think that that's Again, we, we've been playing this game funding just leftist institutions, whereas conservative institutions, um, even through parent choice, have there's been all kinds of controversy about funding that. And that shouldn't be the case. And whether or not you want to define them as leftist institutions, I think the examples we've given kind of proves that they are. So should they be receiving public funding? And that goes to the university level, which I guess we'll transition to now. You have Liz Warren saying that the solution to the the, to the un problems in the university, the solution to student loans and that crisis is just to get rid of the loans and to give free college to everybody. That's doubling down on stupid. Um, so we have poured not just billions in grants and direct grants into the university system, but the federal government has underwritten the $1.5 trillion in outstanding student loan debt. Those are A lot of those loans are loans that would not have been made by the free market. It turns out that if you go and sit down in a bank and you say, I want to borrow $150,000 <laughs> and I want to do it to study, you know, gender studies. Right, something um, that I will, I'll never be able to make that money back. It, it turns out that, uh, you know, the bank bank is going to look at you, they're going to look at your, their prospects for making money, and they're going to say, you know, I don't know about this. If we're going to give you this loan, it's going to be at 50% interest, right? right? Like we're, we're not going to be throwing our money away when there's no possibility of return. But because the federal government has underwritten all these loans, and by the way, 
federal government. That means us. That means, yeah, that means the, the taxpayer. Including the two-thirds of Americans who do not have a bachelor's degree or higher, right? So we're literally talking about um, folks who do not have a four-year degree financing the four-year degrees of the children of the elite who are going to learn about, you know, whatever it is, feminist studies. Um, Basket this is, weaving. This is a really regressive policy, no matter how Elizabeth Warren wants to wrap it up as something that helps, you know, helps the lower income spectrum. It doesn't. In fact, there's been a lot of great studies on that on her proposed plan that show how regressive that is, how it's taking from folks who are not going to college and giving to what are in large part middle class or upper middle class families. Sure. Uh, you know, I'm somewhat sympathetic with the argument. You can't just tell a student, well, you took the loan out, you pay for it, it's your fault. I mean, I understand that in the reality is that that, that is absolutely the case. But is there another solution so that you're not telling these students who you know, probably were forced, not forced by, you know, coercion, but were, you know, told by these politicians and by a lot of liberal politicians, you have to go to college, you have to take out these loans because you're not going to be able to get a job. They realize that's completely false. That's not the case. And they're stuck with the bag. And then our reaction is to tell them, well, you took out the loan, you got to pay for it. That is, I agree with that. That is, you did take it out. It is your responsibility. But how do you message that better? Is there a better way to communicate that to students who feel like they got screwed in this whole process? Yeah, I actually, I do think this is more of a generational issue sometimes. Um, I think that boomers or, or folks um, in the older Gen X cohort don't fully understand how much college costs today. Um, they think that it's possible, for example, to work a part-time job. I mean, and pay that's, for it all. And it's pay for it. We're not. We're talking about the average four-year institution is now uh, between forty and fifty thousand dollars a year. You add living expenses. That's non-public, of course. The public institutions are almost as bad. You're talking twenty-five a year in tuition plus living expenses plus textbooks. You're already looking at something that's very close to the average income of an entire household in America. Looking at an eighteen-year-old kid to be able to shoulder that kind of financial burden is, I think, unrealistic. And I also think it's unrealistic to expect that 18-year-olds would be more financially savvy than U.S. Congress, which is the one who's putting <laughs> right. a piece of paper in front of them and saying, here's $200,000, sign your name, right? right? No bank would do that, right. again. Um, so I, I do think that it's it, we should be placing the burden where it belongs, which is on the bad policies that Elizabeth Warren wants to double down on. These policies, really, they don't benefit the students. They don't benefit people our age with huge student loans. They don't benefit the average taxpayer. Who do they benefit? The universities. And I think that's the way to message this. The universities need to clean up their own mess. They need to have skin in the game. And they need, uh, I think we need to look at freezing and scaling back the amount of money that the average taxpayer is really just pouring into the university coffers. Inez, thank you so much. I appreciate your insight on that. Thanks. That was Inez felcher Stepman, everyone. That's it for us today. Thanks for watching the White House Brief, and we will see you next time. A reminder to everyone, I'd really appreciate it if you'd please rate, review, and subscribe to the White House Brief podcast. It will make sure the truth rises above all the other stuff out there. So please rate, review, and subscribe. Thanks for listening.